All right. Um, so we are continuing on in Jude. And what I would like to highlight for us tonight, uh, we're going to to look just quickly at verse 17 to uh, 17 and 18 to then really uh, 17, 18 and 19. Uh, but where the, the majority of our focus tonight is going to be in verses 20 through 23. And so 17, 18, and 19 are building off of what we've talked about the last three uh, messages concerning the characteristic uh, and what defines those who have crept into the church for which Jude has said that the, the true church of God, those who are uh, loved by the Father, kept by the Son, uh, who are God's called people, are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because, verse 4 of this letter, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. They're ungodly. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a connection then to verse 17 where he says, you must remember, beloved. So it's as though Jude has, after verse four, began characterizing and describing and talking at length about these folks who've crept in. And now in verse 17, he's coming back around to an admonition for the church. It's as though he's focused here on the ungodly. Now he's focusing back to those who know Jesus Christ, who love him, who've been called by him. And he says, you're beloved, beloved. Remember the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a comfort that Jude offers up to God's people that these things are not uh, unknown to God. He's certainly in control of everything that's happening, including those who are defying him as they defile their own flesh. And so the predictions of the apostles, the, the apostles knew about these things. They predicted these things when they said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own, own ungodly passions. They cause divisions, they're worldly people, they're devoid of the Spirit. So only the Spirit can bring freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's by the Spirit that we confess Jesus is Lord. The Spirit is the one, according to Jesus in John chapter 3, who transforms hearts. And out of the heart comes the overflow of the mouth. It's by the Spirit that the completed work of Christ is applied to our hearts. And so these ungodly people are devoid of the Spirit because only the Spirit gives life and gives freedom and applies the salvation accomplished by Christ. And so these people are devoid of that Spirit. And then in verse 20, there's this, there's this switch, but you, beloved. And so again, a refocusing as he's addressing his attention now to the church. So quickly, um, the strategy of worldly people that then Jude is going to be countering from verse 20 on, the strategy of worldly people is to delude, divide, and destroy. First and foremost, they delude the commandments of God. And so a delusion is imposing a misbelief upon people. It's to deceive or fool. And just like the strategy of Satan when he was tempting Jesus to take the Word of God and twist it, they, they dilute the Word of God in an effort to delude the people of God, to deceive them. 
Uh, and, and that's typical uh, of a strategy of Satan. He's been doing it for a very long time. He did it with Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? And the very first doctrine that Satan questioned that he presented to Adam and Eve was the doctrine of judgment. That as surely as you eat of the fruit, you won't really die. That there are not going to be eternal consequences for what you do. And, and Satan is doing the same thing today. And so the strategy of those ungodly people who are sons of disobedience is to delude, to mislead and deceive and fool. And that's never a direct attack. It's always through the side. Because Satan is a good strategist. And these people following in his footsteps, they, they know a frontal assault or attack might be easily withstood because you see it coming. But it's if you can flank them, if you can get them from the side, that's, that's how it works. So it's not a blatant, oftentimes it's not a blatant lie. There's some truths kind of sprinkled in there. So it, it, it sounds close. But it's always twisted. It's always distorted. So they delude. They divide. The, the way that this works is to get people on both sides of an issue that God is very clear and precise and direct about. Um, I, I find it interesting that Paul in his writings to the church is explicit about three things that you don't play around with in the church. For which he, he says we ought to practice church discipline. And then church discipline is not a, a negative word. It's not a four letter word. Church discipline is an act of grace from the church for the love of somebody to say, if you don't stop, if you don't turn from the Lord, then, then you can't continue on here. And so the three things that Paul implores the church not to play around with is sexual immorality, false teaching, and divisiveness. Interestingly enough, in, in Titus 3.10, he writes to, to Titus, he says, as for the person who stirs up division, warn him once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with him. Because divisiveness in the body is a cancer that absolutely eats away at and destroys. And how many churches do you know in your lifetime who've been divided over anything and everything? Pick a topic under the sun. And, and where that is happening, Satan is having a field day. And so he uses ungodly people as his pawns and his instruments to do that. They, they delude the Word of God. They seek to divide the church and ultimately to destroy and Satan roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter writes about that. Well, in the same way, un these ungodly people that Jude says, um, it is they, these who, verse 19, cause divisions, worldly, devoid of the Spirit. Well, this is the, the strategy, like a lion, like their, their father, who is the father of lies, they prey on the weak and the isolated. Um, I, I was reading, interestingly enough, that lions, um, unless there's a time of absolute desperation, they won't even go after large, strong animals like a, an ox or, or a buffalo. They go after the weak and the isolated. And it's the same thing. 
You delude, you divide, and then you destroy. And that's the strategy. So how does Jude then say we counter that? And that's really where I want to spend our time tonight in verses 20 through 23. So if the strategy of Satan and his minions is to delude, divide, and destroy, and that from within, then what do we do? In verse 20, we find our answers unfolding before us. But you, beloved. So if this is what they're doing, if this is their tactics, then you... Beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. That's our marching orders. That's what we do in the face of it. Robert Murray McShay, the, the great Scottish pastor who, who um, ministered extensively to pastors, said the greatest thing that you can do is give your people your own godliness. He said that's the greatest thing you can do for your people. Now he was writing to pastors, but I think it applies. The greatest thing that you can do for your spouse is give them your godliness. The greatest thing that you can do for your church is to pursue holiness. It's Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The greatest thing that you can do for your children or your grandchildren is pursue Jesus Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And that's the greatest gift that you can give them. The greatest thing you can do for your employer and your employees, your co-workers, your classmates, the greatest thing that you can do for anybody and everybody around you is your own personal pursuit of Jesus Christ as your first love. It's the greatest thing that you can do. And so the key verb here. Because there's, there's several participles. The key verb is in verse 21. It's keep. Alright, so we have three things for us to do tonight. Alright, there's, there's three simple points. Keep, wait, and snatch. Alright, so if you're, if you're taking points, there's really three that we're going to unpack about what we do to counter the strategy of our enemy. So we keep, we wait and we snatch. And you're going to see this from the text. So the main verb is in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So that's what I first want to unfold for you is, is what this means. This is the main verb. The things that come before it in verse 20 are the participles. So they help explain what it means to keep yourself in the love of God. Many Christians think that Christianity once in you flip a switch and it becomes autopilot. Alright, so I, I got in. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and I am saved. And now because of that, there's nothing to do. But clearly here, Jude is saying, no, there's something that you ought to do, which is to keep yourself. Now, he's going to close in this great, beautiful doxology that we're going to, to work through tomorrow night. He says in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you. We're going to talk about that tomorrow night. In his introduction in the letter, he said to those who are called beloved in God and kept. So there's bookends of keeping and that work is God's work. Verse one to those who are kept. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep. And this is solely and exclusively the work of God. Yet, in verse 21, he says, keep yourself. Too many Christians think these things are mutually exclusive. 
and they're not. They go hand in hand. It is not flipping the switch to autopilot. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's two works and and they're not mutually exclusive. You can talk about them together. We ought to talk about them together because faith without work is dead. A true living faith manifests itself in work. One ancient theologian Puritan said that we are justified by faith. We are declared right before God because of faith. And it's in it's faith in the completed work of Jesus. But then he goes on and he says, so we are justified by faith and our faith is justified by works. What he meant by that is that you are not justified by works, but your faith is justified by works. Your faith is declared to be a true and right faith. By works. So Jude can say, God is keeping you. He's going to keep you. Keep yourself. Because if He's keeping you, you are going to keep yourself. You're going to be working. Not to save yourself, not to earn something from Him, but because of Him. So the biblical view of our salvation is not flipping on autopilot. Well, I confessed something, I was baptized, I was saved, I prayed, and all of that stuff is in my rear view. And in fact, my rear view is getting further and further and further back. But no, in my, in my foreview through the windshield of my life is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I am striving. It's, it's not a four-letter word. Effort is not a four-letter word for the Christian. I am striving to obey Him. To work out my salvation with fear and trembling before Him. And I'm going to give Him all the praise and all the glory, even for my obedience, because He's the one that's at work in me. So God is the decisive worker. I am the dependent worker. And my dependent work is enabled 100% because of His decisive work to save me. And without that decisive work, I'm not going to work dependent upon Him. But because of that decisive work, I am going to work dependently on Him. And this is the biblical view of our Christian life. It is a, a, a work through faith because it is a living faith. So, to keep ourselves in the love of God, that's really a... a um, kind of a backdrop to these participles that occur in verse 20 that come before. But you, beloved, build yourself up in the most holy faith. So build yourself up. So how do I keep myself in the faith? I build myself up. How do I keep? I build. So that shouldn't be so strange to us if I said that you are to, let's say, build your body up. And we took a, a poll in the audience of what does that mean? Well, how do, you, how do you build your body up? Most of us could probably get at about the same answers if we talked about what does it mean to build our body up. We would start probably talking about eating healthy. Um, now we might define health in, in a variety of different ways. Possibly. Possibly. Uh, eating healthy, we could just say generally speaking, is cutting out bad foods. 
um, eating more of the good foods and everything in moderation, right? Eating in moderation. Um, we would talk about moving, that it's it's good not just to eat healthily, but we need to to be active. We need to uh, move more and sit around less. All right. And then we might also talk about uh, weightlifting. I, I turned 40 this past December and I discovered after turning 40, uh, something happened, a switch kind of flipped. I don't want to go into all the gory details, um, but I did read online that at 40, and I don't know how your body knows this, but you start to lose two to three percent of strength of muscle um, in your 40s, like every year, two to three percent. And so everything that I started reading after I turned 40 was I needed to start going and and doing some weight resistance. So those those that's the trifecta of what would it mean to build our bodies up? We would try to eat healthily, we would try to move more, and we might do some resistance training. So how do we build ourselves up in the faith? It's a different question. We know and could probably all get there together on building ourselves up with our bodies. What about in the faith? And I would say that there are also some things that we could probably get to. You know, the big things that we like to talk about in the church is we need to pray and read our Bible. We need to pray and read our Bible. Well, the prayer part's coming. Hold on to it. So here in verse 20, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. We, the most holy faith is what we are to be building ourselves up into. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Uh, three years ago, Ligonier, which is a ministry out of Orlando, Florida. Uh, it's a, a national and international ministry. Uh, they partnered with Lifeway here in Nashville, to do uh, the, one of the largest studies ever done on the theological beliefs of evangelicals. Now, they defined what an evangelical was, uh, and essentially it was you have to believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Uh, there was about four kind of points to define evangelical, and it would pretty much include all of us without telling you what those were. We would probably, most likely, all of us in this room, or most of us, characterize ourselves as an evangelical um, evangel it's it's you know good news people that we believe the gospel all right so they they did a survey about beliefs of evangelicals and i'm going to read you some of the questions that they asked and i'm going to tell you after you think for a second how you would answer it what percent of the people either agreed or disagreed with this so one of the questions everyone sins a little but most people are good by nature so everybody sins a little, but most people are good by nature. So of evangelicals, 52% agreed with that statement. That everybody sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Now I'm, I'm, I'm contending that we need to build ourselves up in the holy faith under the umbrella of how do we keep ourselves in the love of God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, Paul says that there is no one righteous, not a single one, and no one seeks after God. But what is in us is grotesque, and it's vile, and it is sinful because we are full of sin. It doesn't mean that we do all the wickedness that we could do, because God even hems us in and protects us from ourselves. But sin has 
impacted every part of us. We are full of it. And it is not as though we are good by nature. What we are by nature is sons of Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all and death entered the world because of sin. And that is us. And so if everybody is good by nature, except we have some foibles, some mishaps, some missteps, some mistakes. But that's really not who we are. Who we are is good. Then Christ's death was in vanity. It was it was empty. There was no teeth to it. He died. The gospel G.O.S.P.E.L. is that God offers sinful people eternal life. God accepts, this is another question on the survey, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Evangelicals answered that question. God accepts the worship of all religions. Another way to say that is basically everybody's worshiping the same God. Jews, Muslims, Christians. It's the same God. 51% of evangelicals agreed with that statement on the survey. Uh, having friends and acquaintances who are Muslim, um, they would answer that question. We're all worshiping the same God until pressed, because I've asked my friends that I've I've engaged in this conversation, this line of, of talking. Is Jesus that God? No, 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 absolutely not. So then if I say to you that Jesus is that God, that we're worshiping, would you still say we're worshiping the same God? And and the honest response is no, we are not. I would say I would agree with you. We are not. It's not just the same God who goes by different names. It's a different God that you are worshiping. Another question, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 78% of evangelicals said yes. That Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So again, is Jesus God? What is the definition? Eternal. Infinite. Now there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The second person of the, the triune Godhead, the Son of God, is not created. He is the creator, this is this is John one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word is God. This is Colossians one. This is Hebrews one Colossians one. Everything was created by him for him and through him. So if everything was created by him being Jesus, the eternal word, the son if everything was created by him, then he didn't create himself. He is not the first and greatest created being. He is the creator. Even another question, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Think about that one. So evangelicals, even the smallest sin. So we've already said that most the majority say that everybody sins a little. So they've at least acknowledged that. So what about the answer to this question? Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 
77% disagreed with that statement. So only 23% agreed that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And, and that one, uh, granted, that, that might be challenging because you and I do that with sin. We, we look at the big ones and the little ones. But here's the problem with evaluating sin, judging sin that way, is that what makes sin so vile is not whether it's big or little. It's who it's done against. That's what makes sin so bad. I, I try to explain this to my children because they, in their own childlike way, operate out of what very often kind of deludes our thinking about sin. Well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an addict. I'm not a deadbeat that's living off everybody else. Like, fill it in. However you, however you start to think down about people. But what about my pride? What about my lack of faith? What about my mistrust? What about my complaining? We talked about the, uh, that the other night. What about those things? Well, we think, well, that's not that bad. But who's it done against? In Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance from David after he'd committed sin with Bathsheba, he says in his confession to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And what David is doing in Psalm 51 is, is exposing the spiritual reality of sin is that before it's ever done against somebody else, David had killed Bathsheba's husband. He had, you know, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had tried to conspire to cover it all up and had made even his fellow soldiers accomplices in it. He had sinned against a lot of people. But what David is confessing is this direct line. It's, it's first vertical before it's ever horizontal. So the first place to confess sin before you ever confess it to somebody else is to God because it's first against him and that's what makes sin so bad is who it's against the way that i've i've used this as an illustration is that you know if you if you spit on me tonight as i walk by you on the way out nothing's going to come of it if if you spent spit on the president of the united states there'd be 15 secret service agents with you in handcuffs because of who you did it to. And if you spit on the eternal creator God who is perfect and holy and majestic in all of his being, what's the punishment for that? And, and that's what our sin is. It's on, on you. And it's who it's done against that makes it so bad. Not what you do, but who you do it against. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. So, we study our Bibles. How do we build, our, build ourselves up in the holy faith? We need to study our Bibles. And even these answers to these questions is evidence that evangelicals in the United States of America don't know their doctrine. They're not studying their Bibles. We are called to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. We practice spiritual disciplines. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, verse 24 through 27, Paul says this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating air. 
But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. First Timothy four, six through nine. If you put these things before the brothers, Timothy, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Train yourselves, discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily discipline is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying and it deserves full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. What are the spiritual disciplines? I would commend to you Donald Whitney's book, The Spiritual Disciplines. Bible reading, Bible meditation, Bible memorization, worship, tithing, um, solitude, getting alone by yourself with the Lord. Um, the communion, these are spiritual disciplines, worship together. So we study our Bibles and we practice spiritual disciplines. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Verse 21, we go back to verse 20. We build ourselves up in the holy faith. And this is the second way we keep ourselves in love of God. We pray in the Holy Spirit. What is it to pray in the Holy Spirit? It's to pray in such a way that the Holy Spirit is the mover and guider of your prayers. That we are praying in the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is motivating and fueling and guiding our prayer life. It's to pray and ask God by His Spirit to be with you even in your prayers. This is Romans 8. That the Holy Spirit groans within you. That He prays, taking words that sometimes you even struggle to form and fashion to the very ears of God. We pray in the Holy Spirit. These are not empty, mindless meaningless prayers that we do by rote. But this is being on our knees and our faces before the Lord. Their Godward groans. Romans 8, 15 and 16. Paul writes this. He says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. So the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children. We, we, we pray in faith, believing and trusting that our words are not just going to the ceiling and hitting that and not getting out. Praying by the Spirit is to pray in faith. Um, this past semester, I've been studying through John's Gospel. And I came to this place in John's Gospel uh, around verse 15. And I was struck by something. Uh, chapter 14, rather. That Jesus said this to his disciples, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the father. And there's this refrain. I, I was journaling through John's gospel and I marked my journal up about this. This is chapter 14, verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. That the father might be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That, that in my name is important because I think this is connected to praying in the Spirit. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, to pray at all times in the spirit. That spirit led prayers is equivalent to praying in Jesus name. The reason we say in Jesus name, amen, is not because this is some formula that if we can attach in Jesus name, now God hears my prayer to pray in Jesus name is to pray with the heart motivation by which Jesus prayed. And I think in particular, when he was in the garden, he said, not my will be done, but yours. After he had prayed that the cup of God's wrath would be passed from him, that he that if there was any other way other than receiving the full wrath of God for our sins, for our salvation, let that happen. But not my will be done yours. So to pray in Jesus name is to submit everything to God to say, not my will, but your will. So if I don't get what I'm asking for, I'm trusting you with that. Because your will is better than anything that I could ever think of or conceive or even ask for. But it's to fashion and form our prayers by God's word. And so Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's verses 13 and 14. Then in the chapter 15, as I continue, continued to read, I ran across this. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's important. Ask whatever you wish. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear fruit and prove to be my disciples. And actually, in the context of these couple chapters, there's several other times that this refrain is asked. And at the end of studying this, I just simply wrote down in my journal, why would I not ask God? Even if I get held up on, well, am I asking for the right things? Are my motives 100% pure? Your motives are never going to be 100%. There's only one person whose motives are 100% pure. But Jesus says, ask. I think to pray in the Holy Spirit is to bring everything before God and to, to ask Him about everything in your life. You're driving home from work. You don't have energy. You know you're going to go home and you're going to be bombarded by spouse or kids or grandkids or whatever it is. God, I need you. I need strength. I need listening ears. I need a sympathetic tongue. I, I need you. I can't handle walking in through my front door without you. I'm headed to church on Sunday morning. God, I, I know that it's only by your spirit that we can truly even worship by faith. God, I need that faith from you to worship. I know I've got a meeting this afternoon at work and I'm not going to have answers. God, would you give me wisdom to handle it? It's, it's asking God, this is the, the breath that we breathe in prayer. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. His grace and power are such that you can never ask too much. So we pray by the Holy Spirit. I was reminded of an illustration by um, Bruce Wilkinson from the prayer of Jabez. I read it. Um, the year that I met Sarah, I was reading through the prayer of Jabez. It was my senior year of college. And when I met Sarah's dad, he had just finished reading the prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkinson. And it was a, a kind of a touching point that we connected on. It was actually the way that I duped him into giving her hand to me in marriage um, was to connect on the prayer of Jabez. But Bruce Wilkinson writes this about the prayer of Jabez. He said um, about writing the book, he said, uh, I pulled up a chair to a yellow counter and I bent over my Bible. And reading the prayer of Jabez, it's from Second Chronicles, reading it over and over, 
I search with all my heart for the future that God had for somebody as ordinary as I. This is Bruce Wilkinson writing about this. He said the next morning I prayed Jabez's prayer word for word. And the next morning and the next morning and the next. 30 years later, this was written in 2001. 30 years later, I have not stopped every day praying that prayer word for word. If you ask me what sentence other than my prayer for salvation has revolutionized my life and ministry the most, I would tell you that it was the cry of a gimper named Jabez who still remembered not for what he did, but for what he prayed. There are two verses in the whole Bible dedicated to him. And it was his prayer. He was nobody. And he was not remembered for what he did, but for what he prayed. And for what happened next. I was listening to a message from John Piper talking about this. And Piper was reflecting on what prayer have I prayed over and over and over again in my life. And, and there's not a single one of us in this room that would answer the question, you know, how's your prayer life? Are you praying enough? Absolutely, I'm praying enough. No, all of us. Praying by the Holy Spirit can grow more and more and more. And I was challenged to think about what prayer, what am I taking hold of God for in prayer over and over and over again? And, and if you took nothing else away from tonight, I would challenge you to think of a prayer with your Bible open before the Lord that you would take before Him from now for the rest of your life. Doesn't mean that's the only prayer, but a prayer. Unlike, not unlike Bruce Wilkinson, who for over 30 years prayed every day the same prayer. I'm, I'm challenged in that way. How do we build ourselves up in the holy faith? How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We build ourselves up in faith and we pray in the Holy Spirit. That's point number one. We're going to get point number two and number three down quickly. The second point. So we keep ourselves in the love of God. Second, we wait for God's mercy. Look at verse 22. And, and he says, sorry, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads for eternal life. So we keep ourselves, we wait. We keep, we wait. What does this mean? This is waiting upon the Lord. And he says at the end of verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The way that the Puritans talked about this is that this is living with a view to, to eternity. That this is not my home. That I'm not going to wrap my life so tightly around the things of this earth and what is temporal. But my life is going to be lived through the lens of what is eternal. Romans 8.18 Paul says, I don't consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing to the glory that will be, that is to be revealed. There is so much more coming for us. One pastor I heard say years ago that this world, this life is the closest thing to hell that the Christian will ever experience. This is as bad as it's ever going to get for me and you. Todd and I have a mutual friend who planted a church in Syracuse, New York, whose wife died of cancer when she was pregnant with their third child. They delivered the baby early so they could start rapid treatments. It was ineffective. She had an inoperable brain tumor and she died. A year after her death, I was with this gentleman and I asked him, I said, how are you doing? He said, the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 have come alive to me. Verse 17 and 18. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal 
weight of glory. C.S. Lewis wrote a book after his wife's death from cancer called The Weight of Glory. This momentary and light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. Because the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They won't go anywhere. And he said to me, he said, this does not feel light and momentary. But if that's what God says this is compared to what's coming, I've never wanted what's coming worse than I do now. Living with a view toward eternity. The Puritans called it subspecie eternitatis, a Latin term. That the stuff we do now is done with an eternal perspective. And, and think about it. Jesus said this. Don't store up for yourselves stuff where moth and rust destroys. But store up for yourselves the stuff that is eternal. How we spend our money. Are we spending our money exclusively on things that are transient? Are we investing our time in kingdom ways with the people around us? Are we dedicating our, our service so that we don't even look at, man, I can't wait till retirement so that I can be on the lake every day. I can't wait till retirement. So yes, I'm looking forward to catching some fish. But man, the stuff that I can do with that kind of time in service to the people around me and volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club to, to invest in kids who don't have a father or a grandfather, to, to serve the church with time that I, I don't have currently, that we're thinking about spending our money, investing our time and dedicating our service in, in eternal things that will not pass away. So we wait for the mercy that will be revealed of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're living with a view toward eternity. And this has a this has a present impact. On how we are living. Last point. Look at verse 22 and have mercy to those who doubt. There needs to be a safe, a safe place in the church for people who have questions. This isn't a place for everybody that's got the answers right. Now, as Jude has commended uh, I, I say a, a right and justice and grace-filled judgment on unrepentant, witting sin on the inside to say, warn them, call them to repentance, uh, uh, have nothing to do with them if, if the kind of grotesque, willful sin goes unchecked, unrepented. Yet here, I think he, he balances this out by saying, have mercy on those who doubt. He's, he's even acknowledging that there are false teachers in the midst and there are some people that are starting to listen, to be swayed. And, and maybe they're questioning. This ought to be a safe place for their questions to be asked and, and answered in grace with patience. I, I think about Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe, or 4, where he says to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help 
the weak and be patient with all? Because that's exactly what God does with us. He gives swift kicks when we need swift kicks. Admonish the idol. When, when we are faint hearted, he doesn't, ah, you should have known better. No, he encourages us. Our hearts are weak. We need encouragement. So he knows when to admonish. He knows which medicine fits which disease. He knows when to admonish. He knows when to encourage. He knows that encourage, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak. It's not a man, help yourself. You know, if you go 90, I'll go 10. No, I'll, I'll help you. You're weak. And he's patient. He's long suffering with all. And, and Paul writes to us that that's exactly how we ought to be with each other. We need to fit the right medicine for the disease. We need to admonish the idle. We need to encourage the faint hearted. We need to help the weak and we need to be patient. Long suffering with all. So to those who doubt, have mercy on them. Have mercy on them. This isn't get all the answers right on the test. And then look at verse 23, because this is the last point. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a direct reference to judgment to come. And people, this is a call for the church to be conscious of, to sound the warning, to go actively after those who are facing the fire and to snatch them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's again a warning call for us not to play with fire and get burnt. We need to have a, a holy and healthy disgust for sin. This is a hate the sin but love the sinner. And snatch them out of the fire. This is the call of the church. Because if, if we don't do it, who will? This is God's plan A to save is through His people proclaiming the Gospel. God offers sinful people eternal life. I, I was reminded, and we're going to close with the story of David Buscow, Buscow, Buscow um, several years ago. And I, I came across this story not long after it happened uh, on the, my internet feed. And it was a, a news account of David who was uh, military, he was enlisted in the Air Force, he got out, he worked in different security jobs after that, but he had an interest in survival. And so he paid um, several thousand dollars, nearly four thousand dollars to go out to Utah. He contracted with a company, he and 11 other individuals, to go on a survival trek about 250 miles into the wilderness, the desert, outside of Salt Lake City. And so this was a, a, the kind of thing where you're given just a handful of small items. You don't have water on your person. You have a survival knife, a compass, and then you're basically navigating. They had a destination that they were trying to get to. And um, over a couple day period, they went extensive periods of time without food and water. And David in particular uh, was experiencing the trauma of that more so than anybody else in the group. At one time, he started slurring all of his speech. He would pass out. Um, several of the group uh, members, his companions and comrades, they would pick him up. They would resuscitate him. They would march along. Uh, at one point, he was seen talking to a tree um, as though it was a woman. Um, he was clearly hallucinating because of dehydration. And at one point, with the group and three gods, 
they got about 200 yards away from a cave. The rest of the group went forward. And about 100 yards away, David passed out for the last time and died. Autopsy revealed that it was severe effects of dehydration and electrolytes out of balance because he had gone in the midst of um, triple digit temperatures without water and food for a very long period of time. What ended up being revealed, though, after his death was that the gods that were with the group, who were the trained uh, persons who were helping to instill these survival skills, each God had water on their person that were meant to be used in an emergency. And they never offered him a drop. They encouraged him to get to the cave and everybody else, but he did. And he dropped dead. And they had water that would have saved his life on them. You and I carry with us every day living water. Every day. You will walk out of this building with living water. You will walk around tomorrow surrounded by people who are dying of spiritual thirst. You carry the water of life on your person as you go. And Jude says, how do we how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We build ourselves up in the holy faith. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We wait upon the mercy of the Lord that will be revealed. And we have mercy on those who doubt. And we snatch those from the fire. Now, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's Jonah 2.9. It's His. You and I can't save anyone. But how God has ordained to save is through His people offering living water. We put it in bigger terms, preaching the Gospel. And then the Holy Spirit takes that water and and He transforms hearts and lives. And it's through the means of God's people offering it to a people who are dying daily. And I want to just simply ask as we close tonight that that you would pray. And and there's three things for us to pray about. The first would be that you would keep yourself in the love of God and, and, and pray that. Pray, God, would you give me a holy desire, hunger and thirst for righteousness, for your word and for prayer? Ask God that. Ask God to give you a prayer that so impresses your heart that that is the thing every day from now until your death, until your last breath, you are putting that before the God. Something big, large petitions that you are taking hold and trusting God for. And and ask Him to give you a boldness. A boldness. The problem that we face is not too few of us in the world. It's too much of the world in us. We are going out into the world as God's chosen instruments to bring His living water to a people in need. Let's pray together.